we we you know someone asks for money we do or like mm-hmm. someone asks to buy food we do or we vote the right way give money to shelters and yet that doesn't seem to be doing anything yeah. there seems to need to be a kind of government intervention mm-hmm. how much am i going to get involved like if I do this, like, mm-hmm. where is this going to end up? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. What if they do help the guy lying in the middle of the street? Yeah. Is that like, mm-hmm. what does that look like? You're listening to Stories But Shorter. I'm your host, Cassie Jerkins. Today we have on Dana C. Johnson. Because that's just easier. Their kid was turning weird. She refused to go outside unless she was in a car. Overnight, this seemed to be the case. She didn't want to walk. She didn't want to walk out of the front door of their loft, walk down the hall, get in the elevator, walk out of the elevator, and then walk ten paces onto the street and out into the world. No. She'd get to the door and dig in, screaming and wailing as if she'd lost her mind. The last thing that used to work to get the child out of the house no longer worked. Cupcakes. That was all it used to take. I bet they have the red velvet today, Frida would say. Come on, sweetie, you're with me. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. But the last time they did that, just two days ago, a man wearing a blazer with no shirt lunged at them, muttering something about Jesus and the devil. Devil, he kept saying. Devil. When he said it, it sounded like devil. Give me some sugar, he demanded. He was holding on to the waist of his pants, which had a rope as a belt. His black blazer was so dirty that parts of it glistened in the sunlight. Something like lipstick was smeared on his cheeks, and his long hair stood out at the ends so that he looked like some deranged scarecrow. He lunged at them with his big hands, near enough to see the length of the nails and the blackness underneath them, and she jerked Dakota against her body. But the man was no longer interested in them. He had suddenly changed course like some prop monster on a carnival ride. He walked on, muttering, and everyone on the street who saw him walked past him, eyes fixed on other things. In front of their building, Dakota begged to be taken back upstairs. I don't have any sugar, she wailed, and when Frida tried to calm her down, one of Dakota's bony knees caught her in the chin. Cupcakes were no longer going to cut it. Downtown Los Angeles was a stupid place to raise a child. The move almost spelled the end of their marriage. She was happy in the valley, They'd had a house with a yard and a garage, space and rooms. Jackson had an office all to himself where he kept all his collectibles, his Star Wars memorabilia, his comics, two shelves full of bobbleheads. Even though it was also his workspace for his photography, Frida liked to go in and stare at his large self-portrait where he recreated the cover of Isaac Hayes' album, Hot Buttered Soul. She liked to stare at the smooth brown head, eyes covered in sunglasses, making him a stranger. This is what everyone deserved, rooms full of stuff, and neighborhoods, real neighborhoods with streets that had no sidewalks, streets that had dead ends, 
cul-de-sacs where children, her child, could run and bike and skate themselves silly. Downtown, even though they could barely afford their rent, gastropubs and $16 cocktails and overpriced consignment shops aside, their loft was just two streets up from Skid Row. Every day they witnessed the hard life. There was no getting around the cold hard facts that so many people had nothing, less than nothing. Talking to God themselves or the ghosts of Buddy Holly, that was just last week, there would be nobody to help them. The only thing you could do was occasionally reach into a pocket or a purse and thrust money at the person asking for a quarter or a dollar or sometimes something to eat. When she gave, she did it without looking too hard or thinking too hard or even smelling too hard, taking tiny breaths until she passed the obstacle. Jackson, though, saw things differently. I feel like a shut-in, he often said in his campaign to move. I want to live in the middle of people, people on top of me and below, on either side. But he spent most of his time in his car commuting to a Santa Monica office where he was a commercial photographer. He worked long hours to afford their loft, which was at the very top of their building. The skyline stretched out before them, the mountains emerging behind skyscrapers asserting their timelessness and permanence. They were so high up that they rarely heard traffic or much street noise at all, only the strange and mysterious gurglings and clinks of pipes that seemed to be having an ongoing conversation for years. Dakota had been fine, though, taking the move much better than Frida had until recently. Frida blamed Jackson for this, him and his violent comic books. Frida didn't see the value of his collections. Maybe she would if they had been vintage Superman or something. But what Jackson collected was just gross. Guts and gore. They all had dripping titles like horror, terror, chills, weird. He was big on death these days and had started reading a comic called Cross about a plague that caused its victims to carry out the most debased and horrible things they could imagine. God, the illustrations. Are you fucking kidding me? She asked him. She lowered her voice so Dakota wouldn't hear. Make sure our daughter never, ever sees this shit. Frida, herself, saw those images for days. Dismemberment, blood sprayed all over the place. He also liked The Walking Dead, zombies who beget zombies through contagion. She'd made the mistake of being talked into watching the show, just one episode, just one, Jackson had said. Just watch this one and I'll never ask you again. If you're not hooked, I'll shut up. So she did. They put Dakota to bed, opened wine for her and beer for him. Even before anything happened, she was anxious. She didn't want to see anything ugly and started out with her hands covering her eyes. Nothing's happened yet, Jackson said, pulling her hands down. And it's fake. Just know that it's all special effects, fake blood, artificial substitute for the real thing. But she didn't know why the fake thing, meant to look as real as possible, should be any less disturbing. People who watch scary or crazy, violent movies 
with people dying in slow motion, revenge flicks with people getting killed in creative ways. How in the world could they just take it? In this one movie, I Spit on Your Grave, which Jackson had made her watch when they were first dating, a concession to his handsomeness, a rapist dies after his victim cuts off his penis in a hot bath. Recalling that, she watched The Walking Dead, flinching and covering her eyes the whole time. Frida was done. Just done. After she uncovered her eyes long enough to see a zombie in tattered rags take a bite out of someone's face, tendon or something stretched out between the zombie's face and the newly dead person, the sound effects making her understand, even if she couldn't see, that the zombie was munching on bone and teeth. Nope, Frida said, getting up. Give me points for trying. When she turned around, she saw Dakota standing with her dinosaur blanket wrapped around her little body, transfixed on the television. Monkey, what are you doing up? Don't watch this, Frida said. To Jackson, she said, turn it off. He pointed the remote at the television like a magic wand, erasing all the unpleasantness. But Dakota didn't seem afraid. She stood facing the now black TV and pointed to it. Those people look like the people on the street. What, bubs? Jackson had gone to her and picked her up. What people? The people, she said. She stuck her thumb in her mouth but kept talking. The people outside, the ones that look inside the trash, they don't got nice clothes. No, bubs, Jackson had said. Those people on television are not the same as the people on the street. Those people on the TV were zombies, and zombies are kind of dead. They just walk around. He paused, forgetting Frida saw that he was talking to a six-year-old. They get to be zombies through contagion. They don't see or feel or care about anything except, are you insane, she said quietly. She doesn't need to know or understand anything about... I was just explaining the difference. He crossed his arms, a gesture that she hated. It meant end of conversation. She should not be comparing homeless people to zombies. Not cool. If you weren't a 40-year-old still riding a skateboard collecting comics, you'd know not to talk to a six-year-old about zombies. And if you weren't a 35-year-old afraid of her own damn shadow, Jackson said... Because Frida and Jackson rarely, if ever, let Dakota see them fight, Dakota started crying and saying that she didn't want to be a zombie like the people outside. Am I going to get contagion? I told you, Jackson said. He pushed Dakota's head into the crook between his head and shoulder and pulled on the springy curls of her wild hair. He rocked her back and forth. I told you she needs to know the difference. She needs to know things. Kara was always the passionately cheerful younger sister, and annoyingly so. She volunteered at a homeless shelter in Toluca Lake, where they both were born and raised. She tutored in a literacy project and was a student at Cal State Northridge. Frida agreed with all of Kara's arguments. Yes, downtown was being rebuilt. In fact, that was pretty much a done deal. It was built. Yes, the architecture in the historic core was gorgeous. Yes, it was great for walking. 
the Disney Hall and the Museum of Contemporary Art, the Broad Museum, a hop, skip, and a jump away. And the Central Library was world-class, six million volumes. Who wouldn't want to raise their child around music and museums and libraries? But Frida tried to explain. There was living downtown, as close to Skid Row as to the library in theory, and then there were the practical aspects of raising a tiny human being in a city that had the highest homeless population in the country, a fact which she had not known, of which her sister had self-righteously informed her. It wasn't that there were no homeless people in the valley, or most anywhere else. Everybody sees the man or woman at the off-ramp with his or her homemade signs, sometimes clever ones about cutting the shit and just wanting to get a beer. And there was always someone pushing a cart looking like a little condo on wheels. But I think it's good for us to see hard things like that, her sister had said. Nobody likes to see suffering, but it makes us more empathetic. She drained her coffee, tilting her head back with the cup to her lips. Frida watched her as she tapped the bottom of the cup to get the last drop. Her sister and she looked so much alike, and Frida wanted to grab hold of one of her sister's long blonde dreadlocks and yank it out. What does she know? You could see and then push those images out of your brain almost immediately. But the lingering horror, the terror at seeing people suffer things that no human being should have to suffer alone, so visible and invisible at the same time? In like herds? That's what they called them on that show that Jackson liked so much. Of course, Jackson did the thing she hated, decided something without her, decided that enough was enough with this not going outside business, that Frida was babying their daughter too much, that no kid of his was going to become some weirdo recluse, agoraphobic wackadoo. He'd come home from work and had wanted to enjoy a nice balmy walk. It was summer, and there was the scent of some sweet flower in the air. The dying sun bounced off the glass of high-rises in the distance. It's a beautiful night, he said, crouching down to Dakota's level. Bubs, you need to be a big girl about this. He convinced her to let him carry her out on his shoulders, high above the ground, high above everything. He promised her ice cream. It seemed to Frida that Dakota looked around with big gray eyes, so stricken with fear. It was as if she knew the worst thing in the world was about to happen, and her parents, as old as they were, were too stupid to realize it. Nobody could save her. Frida and Jackson stopped when they saw neighbors, a couple from the seventh floor, Jeremy and Frank, owners of a white English bulldog that Dakota had made her own. Papa, Dakota said, let me down. I want to see Barney. Frida looked at Jackson, and he had that satisfied look on his face, the one she thought was so sexy when they first met, his lips turned up in one corner, one eyebrow raised. And when he let her down, Barney and Dakota stood in the middle of the grown people, as if in a cell constructed of humans. You're outside, Jeremy said, stroking Dakota's head and tugging on one of her curls. He pushed his Buddy Holly glasses back up on his nose, and Frida noticed the fine gray hair on his young face, the kind of hair you can only see in the right sunlight. 
practically the whole building had heard about the little girl in one of those penthouses who had epic meltdowns whenever she had to leave the building. And Jeremy, Frida supposed, was being some kind of cheerleader. Jackson shook his head and made cutthroating motions with his hands. Don't remind her. And Frank bumped Jeremy with a beefy arm, straining against a blue short sleeve t-shirt. What's the matter with you, his eyes said. Dakota kissed Barney on the lips, and Frida wanted so badly to tell her not to do that, but she was so grateful that Dakota wasn't screaming as though she was getting knifed in the back, so she let it go. Let's go, Bubberino, Jackson said, and Dakota hugged Barney as if it would be the very last time she'd see him. She clutched her father's hand, and Frida walked on the other side of her daughter, a reassuring hand on the back of her soft little neck. It was one of those days where the sun was bright and glinty as a knife blade, the breeze gently kissing their faces. Almost at the library, on the corner of Grand and Sixth, there was a man with a handsome face reminiscent of a young Robert De Niro, hair cut military close, squatting, pants down around his ankles, shitting all over himself. Jackson kept walking, but Frida stopped stood stock still, forgetting Dakota for a minute until Dakota tugged on Frida's hand and asked, Mama, is he going to the bathroom? At that moment, Frida decided to die just a little, turn everything off. She did it for Dakota. She didn't want to scare her. She made her eyes dead so they looked at nothing. She stopped breathing so she smelled nothing. Her ears heard nothing. She picked up Dakota in this altered state and walked past the man, wiping himself with his hand, thinking, I hope he is crazy, because if he is crazy, he's not here. And everyone around her, so many people, the people going to lunch, to work, for coffee, for drinks, had the same look of death in their eyes, looking straight ahead, everyone catching the same thought as they walked past the man. Keep walking, just keep walking. My pistachio is waiting for me, Jackson called out to them. Do you want your strawberry? Frida walked with Dakota as quickly as she could past the man, talking the whole time about ice cream flavors. A block up in the ice cream shop, Jackson held Dakota up so she could survey all the flavors. She seemed more interested in the ice cream than in the man. While she looked, Dakota shook her hand, the hand that had been held by Frida. Why are you shaking your hand like that, bubs? Jackson took her little hand and massaged it, working on the little dimpled knuckles. Mama squeezed my hand too hard, Dakota said. They were almost home. One more block and it looked like Dakota would be cured. But there was another man in the distance lying on the sidewalk. All the people in front of them walked and parted mysteriously. And if you didn't know there was a man on the sidewalk, Frida thought, everyone would seem crazy for suddenly changing course like that, identically, almost at the last minute. As they got closer to the man, Dakota took Frida's hand and squeezed it. There was a lot of power in that little hand. Her other hand held her ice cream cone, which she was concentrating on fiercely. 
the ice cream was organic, which Dakota had complained tasted funny at first, although Frida wondered how could she possibly tell. But the more Dakota ate it throughout the months, the more she got used to it. They got closer to the man lying right in the middle of the sidewalk, arms and legs spread as if he'd been making snow angels on the hot concrete. When they passed him, Frida looked at her daughter and saw her big gray eyes get small and determined. She licked her ice cream cone. Is he dead, Mama? No, he's not dead, Frida said, though she didn't know if this was true or not. She told herself that if the man were dead, people wouldn't be walking around him. Are you sure he's not dead? Dakota looked back again. If he's dead, there's nothing we can do, Jackson said. He took a napkin and wiped some of the ice cream running down Dakota's hand. And if he were dead, he wouldn't just be lying in the middle of the sidewalk, so he's probably not. Look, we're almost home. But if he's not dead, Dakota said, turning her head again, turning her whole body. Can't we do something, Papa? If he's not dead, then we should help him. Jackson stopped. He kneeled in front of his daughter. Don't, Frida said and Jackson held up his hand. Wait a minute. If he's not dead, Jackson said, then it's harder. Why? Can't we help him and take him somewhere? Well, that's hard, bubs. Say he goes to the hospital and they fix him, but when he gets out, he doesn't have anywhere to go. Maybe there's something wrong with his brain and he needs help. Dakota looked up at Frida. Can't we take him to where you get the help? Well, Frida knelt down too. You can't do that for everybody, baby. No, Dakota said. She stomped her foot. She did this whenever she got frustrated. It was just her way of saying everybody and everything is so stupid. I'm talking about just him. That's hard to do, honey. Both Frida and Jackson stood up. Why, Dakota said. She pleaded. She really wanted to know. Her little shoulders slumped. They did this whenever she was tired. Jackson picked up Dakota to put her on his shoulders again because he knew the signs for Dakota being tired, but she kicked. Jackson threw Frida his satisfied look, a look that said, hell yeah, my kid wants to walk down the street like a normal person, what I tell you. When they got inside their building, they let Dakota push the button to her floor, like always, and inside their loft, Jackson raised his hand for a high five, but Frida left him hanging. Rock star, Jackson said. He gave Dakota two extra high fives. Frida hugged her daughter long as she could before Dakota pulled away from her, suddenly interested in a coloring book she'd left in the middle of the floor. At dinner, they talked about all the things that Dakota liked. She was turning into a girly girl, which Frida didn't want, but it was happening anyway. They didn't know how it happened, but no matter how many Legos and dinosaurs and trucks they tried to get her to play with, she automatically went to all things glittery and pink and therefore barfy in Frida's opinion. So even though it was summer, she was talking about all the things she wanted for Christmas, mostly Barbie related. But in the middle of detailing all the bestest things about Barbie's glamour camper, Dakota said, I think the man on the sidewalk is dead. 
I think he's dead, she said again and again, until finally Jackson asked why. Yeah, Frida asked. Why, honey? I think he's dead, Dakota said, because that's just easier. So, um, yeah, before the recording, you mentioned that you do live in downtown L.A. Mm -hmm. So is that does that contribute to what inspired you to write the story? Absolutely. I moved uh, downtown in 2005. So I've been Mm -hmm. living there for several years now. And it just struck me again, living uh, so close to Skid Row Mm -hmm. and in the city that has the highest homeless population in the whole country, just what I was seeing and what I was mm-hmm. having to normalize was just really something I had to grapple with. Yeah. And so that's where the story comes from. And mm-hmm. also the more gentrified downtown became, I started seeing more kids and that mm-hmm. got me thinking, well, how are their sort of, how are they processing what they're seeing around them? Mm-hmm. And, and is that damaging or, you know, as the sister argues in the story, it's good to sort of see these things yeah. so that we know they exist in the world. Mm-hmm. So I don't have an answer to those yeah. questions, but I yeah. just thought it would be interesting to write about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's very, like, well explored for sure. Why, if everyone, all of us seem so normal, but why are we ignoring someone who seems in stress on the street? Like, aren't we supposed to help people? Yeah. Just like a lot to kind of Mm -hmm. reconcile. Yeah. And I love at the end that Dakota gets frustrated when they're like, well, we can't do that for everyone. (laughs) Cause that is like, I don't know. I feel like that is um, a response that parents maybe would say to their child. And then the, you know, not necessarily the child would like get to fight back with like such a, smart right. <laughs> response uh-huh. that kind of puts the parents beside themselves yeah. of being like, I don't. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a very practical question because mm-hmm. the volume of homelessness uh, yeah. of homeless people, it's so large, like really like every person you see in distress, you're going to stop and mm-hmm. you're going to like what it's beyond sort of individual responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. something that is a major problem. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, and with like the like the election coming up soon, like that's like getting on the ballot because it is like homelessness is becoming even bigger because Absolutely. of like just like the like literally the past like three to five years, they've been like kicking out people that are in low income housing yes, to yes. turn into like luxury condos. Yeah, I know. And it's like crazy. Yeah. And so it's like they're now like statistics are showing like families are ending up on the streets and everything yeah, so yeah. but it's weird like because i feel complicit as like a person who moved in and gentrified as well <laughs> like mm-hmm. like i moved downtown i used to live in the echo park and i mm-hmm. had price out of echo park and the downtown was cheaper but then because of folks like me mm-hmm. we're displacing people who've lived there mm-hmm. many many years before downtown became sexy or whatever mm-hmm. we talk about like how they live in this like loft that like overlooks like the mountains and the city and yeah Jackson seems totally fine to like just sit down and watch The Walking Dead and like just tune out and then like Frida is like just so much more sensitive to it and then Dakota has clearly inherited that from her yeah right yeah the um 
yeah, I mean, that's her daughter and that's her mother. And so they're kind of, their anxieties are connected, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, and then the relationship between Jackson and Frida is very interesting because in the top of the story, you mentioned like it almost like ruined yeah, their marriage. Yeah. But like throughout the story, like their arguments and everything, it's like, wow, they're two completely different people that it just seems like they were initially attracted to each other and now they're really struggling to like keep this life. Yeah. I don't have kids, but I imagine, (laughs) I mean, people change and you get in relationships and you Mm -hmm. have a kid or whatever and Mm -hmm. then kind of priorities shift and stuff. And so I just imagine like, yeah, these people probably still love each other, but you know, again, differ in philosophies. Yeah. Yeah. And so one is like, no, I'm going to toughen up my kid and Mm -hmm. like she needs to see these things and we're going to practice like walking out in the world and Mm -hmm. that's going to make her stronger. Whereas her mother, her philosophy is like, this is somehow damaging Mm -hmm. and it's turning her neurotic and, you know, into a worrisome child. And so they just Mm -hmm. disagree on what the remedy is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, must be hard. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Because I know... Like, I've read studies, too, that, like, especially when the kid is, like, a toddler, like, that's when it's very difficult for, like, in people's marriages. They say, like, that's the hardest time. Yeah. 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 My parents are like that, too. I feel like uh, they were just, like, tough. Like, you just get over it. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. just figure it out, you know? Yeah. And, but I remember, like, the things I was afraid of when I was a little kid. It was, like, really real. Mm -hmm. Like, we lived in South Central LA, and I'd been watching some, like, monster movie or something, and... I was totally convinced that somehow King Kong was going to come to my like second story apartment (laughs) and like reach into my window. And I was like hysterical. My parents were just like, get a, like go to bed. Yeah. What's wrong with you? It's so real. But poor Dakota, she's got like sort of real things to be afraid of. Yeah. She's looking at. Yeah. And yeah, it must be so triggering that. Yeah. Every time she walks out of her apartment, she doesn't know what she's going to be. I mean, every day, all day is what we see those of us who live in like Mm -hmm. various areas downtown Mm -hmm. every day, all day. Yeah. I mean, so it's really, again, it's such a, uh, it's a difficult question and, and, uh, but, it's like living there for so many years. I'm just kind of like sadly used to it yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't want to be used to it. Mm-hmm. Right. But I am used yeah. to it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's like we wish the world was, you know, different and that like that wasn't an issue, but yeah. it is. And yeah, I mean, I it's like heartbreaking to read, but I totally relate to like um, when Frida says, oh, I, you know, I hope he's crazy because then he's not here. And it's interesting because you don't know, like, there's like a combination of like, well, some people are mentally ill and some people just don't have money because rent's high and they yeah. have nowhere to live mm-hmm. and they're not mentally ill or they're not, they're not, you know, a, um, um, struggling with drug abuse or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's just like a combination of situations, but everyone's down there needing help. So mm-hmm. with that conversation they have at the end with Dakota, it is like really just kind of shows what everyone's feeling and thinking. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it it's because it's it's just easier to right. go dead in the eyes and like keep walking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and she's right too like mm-hmm. little kids are so smart like mm-hmm. she is like on a just like a basic human level without thinking yeah. like well what does this mean for me if i get involved like the very real thing is just like someone needs help you just help them yeah it's yeah. not that hard Stories But Shorter is produced by Jeremy Schmidt and hosted by me, Cassie Jerkins. Campfire.